Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The following program contains distressing content and graphic details regarding suicide. This may be triggering for survivors of suicide loss and those with lived experience. Please proceed with caution. If you're in crisis or having thoughts of suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text TALK to 741-741. For more resources, please visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's website at afsp.org. Slash find support. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to our second q and I appreciate all the questions you've been sending in. We're going to try to hit a lot of them in this episode, but if we don't get to yours, don't worry, there will be another Q&A in the future. So continue calling in with your questions. You can reach us at 470-300-4915. All right, let's jump into it. I've been listening to the podcast and the one piece of evidence that keeps sticking with me is about the gun. If Christian was indeed right-handed, there's no way he would have shot himself with his left hand. So is that documented that the gun was certainly in his left hand? Also, the decocking mechanism, that's another one that just could not have been a mistake if it was the case. Is there documentation that the gun was decocked? The only way it might have been decocked is if it was the last round in the magazine and and the slide was all the way open. So those two pieces, was the gun really in his left hand? And was the gun really decocked with a round in the chamber? Those are questions that I think need to be definitively answered. Great work. Thanks for the podcast. The gun was never documented as being decocked. In the MPD report, it says the gun was recovered, secured, and bagged by Detective Wilburn. One of the Andriacchio's former PIs later asked the officers at the scene if any of them decocked the gun, and they all claimed they did not. This same PI enlarged one of the crime scene photos of Christian leaned over the tub, and from this picture, you can tell that the gun was decocked. Really enjoying the culpable show so far. We do have a question. Was the gun at the murder scene or the scene 
Was it tested for fingerprints? And if so, did it show Christian's left-hand fingerprints or right-hand fingerprints on it? Or any other fingerprints, for that matter, on it? Thank you. In short, yes, the gun was tested for prints and none were found. It is fairly uncommon to obtain usable prints from a firearm. Research shows that labs typically get prints on only about 10% of the guns that are examined for prints. It is important to note that prints may be present, but they may not necessarily be usable. Hi, I'm a huge fan of the podcast, and I love what you guys are discovering on Pulpable. Um, I actually just had a really quick question for you guys that I hope you guys would be able to answer for me. So what was the reported stomach contents, and how much digested material was there? If Dylan actually did get Chick-fil-A, then we'd expect to see a good bit of that food digested and out of the stomach if he died when they stated, right? Based on the rigor, that just doesn't seem possible, though. But, but the stomach contents would bolster the case for an earlier TOD and should raise some more questions, I would think, about the movements of the parties involved. Anyways, I love what you guys are doing. Um, keep up the great work. Based on the toxology report, Christian was found to have caffeine in his system. The autopsy report states his stomach contained pieces of partially digested food. There wasn't any indication what the food was or when it was consumed in the report. Hey, I have a few questions for the Culpable podcast. Dylan had a lot of residue on his hands as well. Was he questioned about why he had gun residue on his hands? What were his answers? Did the police look into that? Thanks. Not that we are aware of. If he was questioned, it was never documented in the report. I was wondering if you would release or at least describe the coroner's report. I would be very interested to see if there was an exit wound or anything that would indicate that the positioning of the weapon or the positioning of the entry wound was not consistent with suicide or a self-inflicted gun wound. I think that that would shed a lot of light on this. Again, I think that you're doing an excellent job really getting down to all the details of this case, and uh, you're really doing the good work for this family who's obviously experienced quite a terrible, terrible tragedy. The coroner's report was in the MBI report and is a checkbox type of report, not a narrative that the coroner wrote out. But there are some odd things about his report, and Dr. Arden had some issues with it, because it was not filled out completely, and some of the information was off, based on the level of rigor that Christian was in. I don't have an explanation for the discrepancy, but it is worth mentioning. Aside from typical information, like name, age, etc., the case narrative says, this 21-year-old male had been depressed lately. Friend found him slumped over the bathtub, EMS and LED found gunshot wound to the head, body placed in a bag, and transported to the morgue. For time of injury, he says 4.45 p.m., February 26, 2014. For last seen alive, he also says 4.45 p.m. with the same date. And for time of death, he says 4.45 p.m. with the same date. However, the death certificate the coroner issued has Christian's death at 3.45 p.m. So there's a discrepancy there. Hey, my name is Riley. I took a special interest in this podcast because I live only an hour away from Meridian. And I had a question regarding 
a statement that was made in a previous episode about a certain officer being in charge, and if that officer was still in charge, and the case would never be solved, maybe because there was someone else involved in the murder of Christian. So, yeah, that's my question. Thank you. The person this question is referring to is Bilbo Mitchell, the DA at the time of Christian's death. In episode six, we hear that Arrington told Ray and others in their meeting that nothing would be done with this case as long as Bilbo was involved. When Ray asked why, Chief DeBose said that Bilbo had a, quote, personal interest in the case. As of right now, we are trying to understand this ourselves, and we hope to have more information related to this in future episodes. Have the Andreacchios ever considered a civil suit against Whitley and Dylan for maybe a wrongful death? I think that would possibly give them access to all the investigative files from uh, the MPD. The Andreacchios have considered filing civil suits against multiple entities due to the pain and suffering as well as the financial hardship they've faced. They are currently pursuing legal action against multiple individuals. Hi, this is Bailey from British Columbia, Canada, and um, I've been listening to the podcast Culpable. Um, It's really great so far. And I just had a question regarding if there was any security footage, maybe from the apartment lobby or um, the parking lot, showing Whitley and Christian leaving to go to the park, as they said, or leaving the apartment any time around after they got in their argument. Um, Yeah, thank you. Unfortunately, there wasn't any security footage at the apartment complex, though that would have been extremely helpful in this case. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. 
I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. We've been asked multiple times online if we have received a copy of the Attorney General's case file. The answer is yes. After the Andriacchios received a copy, they shared it with us. We also obtained our own copy last week after we went through the formal request process. This is Amy from Birmingham, and I have a question about something that I've heard Whitley say a couple of times regarding the gunshot residue. She says that you can tell what type of gun based on the residue. Is that true? And if so, was it ever compared? I think you guys are doing a great job. Absolutely love the podcast. Thank you. Have a great day. Generally speaking, unless unique ammunition was used, you cannot match gunshot residue to a certain gun. In this case, unique ammunition was not used. So there was not a match to the gunshot residue found on Whitley and Dillon with the gun found at the crime scene. Hey guys, this is uh, Mark in Boston. Uh, Great podcast so far. Uh, My question was, I noticed in the fourth episode, Whitley had said uh, in her text exchange with the guy that she was supposedly seeing, uh, she said that the gunshot residue on her hand was ruled not to be from the gun that Christian owned. I was wondering if this was ever determined to be a true statement or if that's even possible to determine what kind of gun residue someone has on them. Thanks again and keep up the great podcast. In short, no. The results from this test didn't come back from the crime lab until March 31st, 2014. Whitley made these claims to Matt on March 3rd. Plus, as I mentioned earlier, in this case, it wasn't possible to match the gunshot residue with the weapon. Hey guys, thank y'all for what y'all are doing. And I had a question about the truck that was spotted uh, at the time of Christian's death at the apartment, the gold GMC. Has there been any uh, additional information on that? Thank you. Bye. We do not yet have an answer to whose gold truck was seen at the apartment, though there is some speculation online that it belongs to a maintenance worker from the apartment complex, though this is another component that we are still actively investigating. Hi, my name is Steph. I have been listening to the Culpable podcast, and I had a question about the timing of this podcast and investigation. I had been searching online because the story is so interesting and sad and had found that it looked like they had tried to indict Whitley and Dylan or one of at least one of them back in 2017. And I wondered how, like, when your investigation started, if it was after that, um, if there's anything new as in anybody wanting to look into this case again. Thanks. Bye. The Andriacchios have been investigating this case from the beginning with help from private investigators. However, Black Mountain Media's involvement didn't begin until June 2018, which was about a year and a half after the attempted indictment of Whitley and Dillon back in January of 2017. Hi, this is Chris from uh, Northern California. I'm really enjoying the podcast. I think everything put out by Tenderfoot's been really good so far. So the blood spatter, it's come up a lot that there's been a lack of it, and it's been in un- 
or places that it shouldn't be. For instance, the outside of the bathroom door. So I'm just curious on uh, what you mean by the blood spatter. There was a lack of it that I'd like to hear more about. His head wound was a perforating wound, meaning the bullet entered and exited his skull. There would be more blood spatter from the exit wound than the entrance wound. A gunshot wound to the head would produce a high-velocity blood stain. A 45 caliber round tends to produce fairly significant amounts of blood spatter associated with contact, near-contact, or close-range gunshot wounds to the head. If Christian shot himself, he should have had blood stains on the wrist and forearm of his shooting hand, as well as on the shooting hand itself. There also should have been blood on his clothing, as well as on the walls to his right. Back spatter would also cause blood to be deposited inside the barrel and on the outside of the handgun. If there was no blood on the outside, yet blood was inside the barrel, this is corroboration the outside of the gun was wiped clean. The gun was tested for fingerprints and blood. There were no latent fingerprints on the gun, and there was no blood found on the gun. This was also backed by the crime lab, who stated there was not blood anywhere on the gun or in the barrel. Hi, Dennis. Taylor from North Carolina here. My question is if there is a statute of limitation on murder in Mississippi. I love the work you're doing on Culpable and at Black Mountain Media. Thank you. There is no statute of limitations on murder in the state of Mississippi. We have mentioned before in the show a three-year statute of limitations, but that pertains to wrongful death suits. My thoughts in my heart are with the Andreacchio family. This must be so difficult. Um, I was wondering, based on, there was another podcast I was listening to where they downloaded the Google data from a person's phone who was deceased, and that was able to show them the location of the phone. It seemed like with a lot of accuracy, much more accuracy than uh, even cell towers can do. And I'm sure there might be a whole bunch of other data on the phone that is being collected by services like Google or Apple that run in the background and, uh, you know, know things like your location and could also help recover maybe some messages that have been deleted while Whitley had possession of the phone. So I was wondering if you guys have been able to get into any of Christian's accounts to see what might be there. Thanks, and I'm enjoying the podcast. It's just a very tragic subject. When they were able to access Christian's account, there was no data. He hadn't even received any new emails. They figured the account was wiped because of inactivity. The account had been locked by Google due to suspicious login attempts. They weren't able to gain access to the account until just recently. Furthermore, Christian did not use any Google apps on his iPhone. Hi, this is Christine from Auburn, Washington calling. Um, My question for the culpable team is, has any of this evidence that you have been sharing caused the MPD or the MBI to pull their heads out of the sand and re-examine any of this? Thanks for all that you're doing and hopefully Christian gets justice soon. MPD still has this case closed. The only information that we've shared so far that MPD did not have at the time of doing their initial investigation is the witness at the apartment that heard the gunshot. Other than that, they have been informed of the findings of Knox and Associates and Dr. Arden, but this has not led them to change their ruling on the case or reopen it. Hey guys, we just finished culpable episode eight, uh, talking about the forensics in the crime scene, and we had 
two two questions. We were curious if how many rounds had been fired from the weapon, whether it was just the one that was uh, in the drywall, and then also did they recover any kind of blood or tissue from the hole in the wall to confirm that that was the bullet that had hit Christian? Thanks for your time. Keep up the good work. There's no way of knowing for sure how many rounds were fired. It's believed that just the one round was fired. The gun was found with six rounds in the clip, one round in the chamber, and one expended round was found in the bathtub. While there was what appeared to be a bullet hole in the wall, the bullet was not still in the wall when officers arrived on the scene. The bullet was found in the bathtub and subsequently had Christian's blood on it. But there did appear to be material consistent with wallboard on the bullet. If this was in fact the bullet that killed Christian, there should have also been biological matter on the bullet, but it is not documented that it was ever tested to determine if that was the case, so there really isn't a way of knowing. Yes, I've got a question. Uh, at the beginning of episode seven, Christian's brother, Josh, said they'd found a T-shirt in the apartment when they went back in, and it was clearly used to wipe up blood. Did they take any pictures of it? And uh, with that being said, did any of the police that showed up take pictures, or do they not take pictures in the event of a, a suspected suicide? I mean, was the crime scene unit called? because it was suspected to be a suicide? Thanks. In short, there are no photos of the shirt in the crime scene photos. Josh is the one that found the shirt when he was at the apartment cleaning the crime scene. He was on his hands and knees cleaning the floor when he found it, and after realizing what it was, he put it in a bag and gave it to MBI. He didn't see the need to take photos for himself at the time, because at the time, they were not yet distrustful of law enforcement and assumed MBI would handle the evidence appropriately. Hey, y'all. Uh, first of all, I love the podcast. Uh, my question is, I believe it was in episode seven where Ray mentioned that she asked law enforcement to speak with Todd's dad because Dylan had talked to him. So can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Thanks, and keep up the good work. Todd's father... Christian's grandfather is Joe Andriacchio, and Joe worked with Dylan's grandfather in the guard. Shortly after Christian's death, Dylan went over to Joe's house to tell him about what he knew. Joe has since passed away, but we do have his original notes, which I can read from, that lay out what they talked about. It's mostly from Dylan's alibi, which we've heard several times, and most of it is consistent, but I'd still like to share this with you. Before I get into it, I'd like to add that Ray's adamant that Joe told her the reason Dylan came over there was because he was concerned what Whitley was saying about him. And he also asked on her behalf about a life insurance policy. We have Joe Andriacchio's notes, which lay out what they talked about. I'll admit that that's not found in the notes. What's found in his notes from that day is a depiction of Dylan's alibi. Joe Andriacchio has since passed away, so we can't get an account from him to this day. But we do still have these notes, and I'd like to read through these. Again, this is depicting Dylan's alibi. The notes read, I got a call from Christian. He asked if the girl was still there. He told him yes. He told him to come to New Orleans and pick him up. He was coming home to get his car and get her out of the apartment. Upon arrival at the apartment, 
Christian told Dylan to go get sandwiches and drinks at Chick-fil-A. When he got back with the food, she did not eat hers, but put it behind her on a shelf behind the couch. Christian told him they were going to go take a ride and come back in two hours. At this time, Dylan left a second time. When he came back, she was on the couch, and he asked where Christian was. There was no reply from her. She was asleep. He started to call for Christian and went in his room, but he was not downstairs. So he went upstairs and found Christian slumped over the bathtub. He yelled at this time. She woke up and came upstairs and grabbed Christian. He told her not to touch him because he was calling 911. She got a cigarette out of his pocket. This is when the call was made, and she went downstairs and sat down on the step. At this time, Dylan told me there was a drop of blood on the steps. 911 was called at 4.48. She then went back to the couch and went back to sleep. The sheriff department shows up and barely touches her, and she wakes up. She never heard the shot, she said. Dylan also told me on the trip from New Orleans to the apartment that Christian had a tracking device on her phone and that he had a picture of his car at Matt Miller's house for three to five hours. Lastly, I'd like to address the subject of money. We've received a handful of questions on the matter, some directed at us, the producers, and some directed at the Andriacchio family. Rather than share specific questions, I'm just going to take a minute to address all of the questions in one swoop, and hopefully you will find this helpful. First, we, the creators of Culpable at Black Mountain Media and Tenderfoot TV, have received no money from the Andriacchio family. All that the family has given us is their son's story and their trust. In my opinion, taking money from this family would be a crime in and of itself. And even if they were to offer, which they never once have, we would decline. We are paid by our sponsors. They are very important to what we are doing here because without them, we wouldn't have the means to produce this show. To our sponsors, we want to publicly thank you for your support and helping provide us the opportunity to share this story. As for the family, the Andriacchios have not received any money or profited in any way through this podcast, and I assure you they would never want to. The only thing they want in this is justice for their son. They fought for that for over five years now. Believe me, that's the only thing they're concerned about. So to those of you asking how you can help the family and whether or not there's a way to donate, the answer is no. They appreciate the offer, but that's not what they want. However, if you feel compelled to help out in some way, I think that's very honorable, and that you should look into giving towards a charity instead. I'd like to point you to a nonprofit organization that Ray started called Magnolia Sun. It was created in honor of Christian, and their mission is to provide appropriate footwear and clothing for children in need, with emphasis placed on children in state custody, in order to meet their basic needs and facilitate improving their self-esteem. I love what they're doing at Magnolia Sun, and I urge you to go to their website where you can learn more. You can check them out at magnoliasun.com. This concludes our second Q&A episode. As I mentioned earlier, we will be doing another one in the future. So continue calling in with your questions. You can reach us at 470-300-4915. Remember to tune in Monday for episode 10.
Copable is a production of Black Mountain Media and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13. Executive producers are Dennis Cooper, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, and me, Mark Minnery. Additional production by Whitney Bozarth, Courtney Cooper, Meredith Stedman, and Mason Lindsay. Audio editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Resonate Recordings. If you have a podcast or are considering starting a podcast of your own, I urge you to check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. Theme music and score by Dirt Poor Robbins. Cover art by Drew Bardana. I want to extend a special thanks to Mike Hines, Sheila Wysocki, and Lance Black. You can follow us on social media at Copable Podcast. Show notes, as well as bonus content, can be found on our website, copablepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. And lastly, if you have any information related to the death of Christian Andriacchio, please email us at tips at blackmountainmedia.net or call us at 470-300-4915. Thank you for listening and tune in for new episodes every Monday.